Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with the vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning. We are close to the end of June, which means that uh, we are close to the end not only of Pride Month, which I know, uh, you know, that's really been the big topic for the left, but also close to the end of the Supreme Court's term. And so speaking of both uh, June being Pride Month, uh, unfortunately, and also the Supreme Court. Coming to the conclusion of their session, uh, Rachel Levine, who of course is a man, and I think we can say that uh, here, but Biden's uh, admiral, said yesterday that he wants to extend Pride Month to Pride Summer, as if this whole nonsense wasn't enough that we somehow need to acknowledge an entire month of of pride and all of the uh, the verses in the Bible that talk about pride going before a fall and, and uh, seeing all of the depravity that has been going on uh, in the country just on full display. Now the Biden administration is wanting to have an entire summer. They literally want to take, um, not and, and it's not even going to be a summer, they are never happy with just uh, incrementally doing anything. It's always continuing to push until an absolute takeover. And so pretty soon it's just going to be regular uh, pride everything everywhere all the time and we all have to celebrate it or else. Uh, that's really where they're headed. And um, if you missed the the episode um, about a month ago when I had uh, now National Religious Broadcasters uh, Senior Counsel uh, my good friend Mike Ferris on. Um, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. Um, th- that was that was just a really great conversation about protecting religious freedom, freedom of speech, and uh, he actually characterized a lot of what's going on uh, with compelling Christians to speak against our sincerely held religious beliefs in uh, the public square and and elsewhere. Uh, as as modern day heresy trials. And I actually think that's a very apt way to describe what's going on and uh, describe what will continue to happen with a lot of these cases that uh, not only have been threatened by the Biden administration but uh, and others, but have actually gone all the way up to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, like the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, 303 Creative, and others. And uh, so speaking about the Supreme Court, um, the, the uh, Supreme Court has left this term's blockbuster decisions, according to ABC, for last, with rulings expected this week on student loans, affirmative action, and more. So the justices will hand down their next round of opinions tomorrow at 10 a.m. So we will be looking for those. They did hand down a very important opinion that we're going to talk about in the next segment uh, with, uh, with a good friend on the elections clause, and we will definitely get into that. Uh, but the the uh, the opinions are going to uh, decide quite a, a number of significant issues. Um, of course, with federal student loans and uh, the Biden administration, and then also 
the uh, precedent of race conscious college admissions processes and of course LGBTQ rights. So all of this and more uh, with the U.S. Supreme Court and and we're going to get into that and this whole concept of judicial review in the next segment. Um, but I also wanted to answer a question that um, that came through um, a few responses from yesterday's program. And I always really appreciate hearing from everyone. Of course, you can reach us, Jenna at AFR.net. You can, um, that's actually the better way to have uh, me and my team kind of look through some, uh, some questions. Uh, I do see a lot of the comments on uh, social media, but I don't uh, actually read all of those. There's there's always a lot, and uh, a lot of those are, <laughs> you know, not really comments as much as trolling, which is just the nature of Twitter, and that's fine. Uh, but you can always also follow us at Jenna uh, Ellis AM. That's the show Twitter handle, and that one gets uh, a few less uh, trolls <laughs> than than my personal one, which is which is always fine. Um, so you're welcome to leave a comment um, or question there or uh, email in jenna at afr.net. Um, but one of the questions, and this was from um, Cindy from Texas, who I think articulated it really well, when we were talking about uh, moral law and and having uh, the, the civil society uh, and our civil government and civil institution promote uh, the truth of the word of God and to basically legislate morality. Um, and Cindy is asking, well, at what point then could the government then legislate and say, well, what I want to do in exercising my faith then is quote unquote sin? Well, th- this is always a matter of degree and bright lines, right? And and this is a good question because when we're talking about what the government should prohibit versus what the government should permit, there's always a question of what what do we criminalize in society and what do we not? And the response from Christians and conservatives can't be, well, if we are so concerned about the government prohibiting conduct that is essential to my life and my faith, then we have to go so overbroad that we allow other unrelated conduct to be permitted so that we don't capture my conduct. It's always a matter of what does a society choose to criminalize and based on what standard. And and in criminal law, it is, of course, the area of law that the state can provide uh, consequences and and remedy for certain conduct. And so the realm of criminal versus civil law, which I know, know most of you know, is when the state comes after an individual for conduct that is prohibited by law versus an individual in a civil context uh, filing a case. I can't, as a private citizen initiate uh, a a criminal action against someone else. Um, I can go to law enforcement and I can uh, file a report and I can ask the government to, but I can't uh, as a as a private citizen uh, initiate that type of um, of of lawsuit. And so when we're talking about what the government, uh, can prohibit in society, we're generally speaking uh, talking about criminal liability. And so by what standard uh, do we prohibit certain conduct in society? And this is where every society 
has a moral standard and does legislate morality. It's just whose morality are we talking about and by what standard? Because if the standard is we all have to just get together and decide what to prohibit, then look at where we're at as a culture. If we're saying that uh, now it should just be totally permissible, forget about um, public nudity laws, forget about uh, exhibition laws, forget about um, you know all of these other uh, sexual exploitation uh, standards and laws when we're dealing with uh, men who are naked on bicycles running around in a parade uh, in front of children. And just forget all of that because as long as it's in the context of a pride parade, that's somehow exempt then from the standards that we've always had in law. Well, no, we need to have a, a conversation about that as society. And and so it's it's not just a subjective determination based on how the culture progresses. That is the nature of a or and the ideology of a fluid constitution that that bends and shapes according to the direction of the culture. Originalists in the constitution would say that we have bright line moral standards. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Truth doesn't change. Now, do we need to, um, to I don't like to use the term update, but for lack of a better term, do we need to um, update our laws to accommodate uh, various progresses, for example, in technology, um, other things that the law hasn't yet contemplated. These are called landmark issues and cases. Well, yes, we do need to address all of those, but we should be adhering to the same principles because the principles that that dictate a well-ordered and morally upright society don't change. Uh, the principles, for example, of freedom of speech, whether that speech is in a medium of radio, like what we're doing right now, whether it's on a medium of television, whether it's a medium of a quill pen and parchment, or whether it's a medium of text message or social media forum, all of these things, or some technology that we haven't yet invented, freedom of speech is still freedom of speech. And the medium isn't as important as the principle. And so that's where then legislators and eventually lawyers uh, end up then arguing and elaborating on how does the principle apply. But we need to go back and look at what is the standard by which we are legislating and we are determining how our law is shaped in our civil society. And if that is just on man's whim and saying that harm is, is defined by lack of consent. And the only thing that government has jurisdiction over is a harm where there is lack of consent rather than saying, um, as we did yesterday, for example, that the government can, and I believe should, prohibit any of these, for example, gender transition surgeries, even for adults. And, and and some people would argue, um, and, some, and, and several of you wrote in to, to ask that question, well, um, if I'm if I'm not allowed to do what I want to do with my own body with my own money, um, doesn't that go against freedom? And that's that's the entire conversation. Is that what does how do we define freedom? What does genuine freedom and liberty look like in a well ordered society? What is the role and function of the civil government? And what's the jurisdiction of the civil government over 
the individual. And what does God say about all of those things? Because ultimately we have to realize that God himself is the divine authority and he has, a, he has delineated certain jurisdiction and authority to the institutions that he has ordained, which is the civil government, the church government, and the family government. So the civil government doesn't have jurisdiction and power over, for example, church discipline and the areas that the church has province over. Uh, the civil government doesn't have authority over the domain of parental rights or um, certain other individual rights. But some of these things can overlap. So for example, I don't think any of us would disagree that if there was an issue of, um, for example, sexual assault in the context of the church, the civil government can come in and prosecute that case. And that would fall within its jurisdiction. Or if there is a legitimate um, abuse going on in the home, you can't, you can't say, well, whatever, literally whatever happens within uh, the four walls of my house, that's, that doesn't matter because that's, um, the government needs to stay out of my home. And so that type of argument that has been advanced for things like uh, prohibiting homosexuality, for prohibiting adultery, for prohibiting things like uh, gender reassignment surgery. Now, all of those things, we've used some of the leftist talking points to say, oh yeah, because I as a Christian definitely don't want the government to come in and tell me how to raise my family or, um, or live my life. Then we are just assenting to this principle that harm only means lack of consent. And I think that we need to reorient our perspective to the truth. And the truth is that God is the ultimate authority. He has ordained each of these institutions. And civil society is for the distinct purpose to promote good and restrain evil. So what does that look like? Where do we draw those bright lines? That's the entire realm of how we need to have the conversation about genuine freedom and liberty. We can't just say less government is better. We can't just say that morality is is lack of is lack of consent and the only moral law that can be enforced in civil society is the bare minimum because otherwise I think we are taking away part of a civil institution design that God has specifically ordained and given jurisdiction to. So we need to have these conversations. Where do we draw the bright lines? Well, we'll be talking about that more as we continue here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. So the Supreme Court issued an opinion yesterday, uh, several in fact, but we're only going to talk about one of them that was uh, very important. And this is Moore versus Harper, if you are interested in going and actually reading the opinion for yourself. But this dealt with the Federal Elections Clause in Article 1. And the holding of the court is that the Federal Elections Clause does not vest exclusive and independent authority in state legislatures to set the rules regarding federal elections and therefore did not bar the North Carolina Supreme Court from reviewing the North Carolina legislature's congressional districting plans for compliance 
with North Carolina law. So this was a 6-3 opinion, and uh, if, if the opinion of the uh, justices and who was in the majority and minority gives you any indication of uh, what I think about this case, know that uh, Justice Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion and uh, the three most conservative justices, in my opinion, on the court, um, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch were all in the dissent. So joining me now to uh, talk about this more and break down what this actually means for future elections and also the concept of judicial review is John Hostetler, who was a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives and the author of the book Ordained and Established, A Statesman's Citizen's Guide to the United States Constitution. So good morning, John, and thank you so much for joining me this morning. Good morning, Jenna. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate this. And so um, so just first overall, um, with this particular case that we're dealing with, Article 1, Section 4, uh, which uh, for listeners, uh, that section is the time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. So this is the section that the Supreme Court case is contemplating. And um, and basically the North Carolina uh, Republicans, their, their argument was to say that the legislature, the state legislature, um, basically has plenary authority to, uh, under the U.S. Constitution and state law can't get in the way of that. Uh, and and so they have this, this idea that this is actually power given to the state legislature that can't be foreclosed by another uh, another law to the state, so or, or by the state or by the Constitution. So in terms of, of how you read the majority opinion, um, I, I don't think this is a great opinion, uh, but what is your take on this overall? Well, it's, it's not a great opinion. And uh, my uh, view of that is not a, uh, the first time for me. Uh, when I was in Congress, I uh, took umbrage with a lot of what uh, the federal judiciary did uh, on several occasions. And um, I, I think, you know, you've, you've read the clause in Article 1, Section 4. And in fact, it does do exactly what the Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court said it doesn't do. And it does vest exclusive authority in the state legislatures to uh, to draw maps in this particular case. It would be under the, the, the manner of holding elections for representatives, and, and that's what it does. But, Jenna, what's uh, most uh, troubling to me, but not uh, completely unfamiliar, is that it's what the, the federal judiciary, the Supreme Court, left out of its opinion, and that is an allude, uh, any uh, – reference to the supremacy clause, uh, which is in Article 6, because Article 6 solves this problem. It, it answers the question that the court ostensibly is making in this, and, and the, the court is basically asking, does first of all, does the uh, state legislature have, ex- have exclusive authority? If you look at Article 1, Section 4, the answer is yes. And then it asks if, if the state courts can intervene or, in my opinion, interfere in this exclusively vested authority in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 6, Clause 2 uh, is uh, what's known as the Supremacy Clause. Uh, 
And it, it says very clearly, it answers this question very clearly, this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And this is the important part. The judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Once again, bound by the Constitution in this case, in this, in this case that we're talking about this morning. And then it goes on to say, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. So the court is asking basically, does the uh, North Carolina state legislature have exclusive jurisdiction? Article 1, Section 4. Uh, answers that. Can the judges in the state, in North Carolina in this case, can they, according to their constitution or their laws in the state of North Carolina, can they disregard that particular exclusive authority? And the, and the constitution clearly says no. And so the, the court, the, the Supreme Court seeks to, and, and some commentators, I'm, I'm sure you've read, have, have suggested this, is that the, the Supreme Court is continuing to assume more authority uh, in all kinds of areas. And in this particular case, we can see very clearly that not only does the Supreme Court not have authority in this, but the state courts can't have authority in this either. And and that's just so well stated, uh, John. And I'm talking with John uh, Hustetler, who was a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives and the author of uh, the book Ordained and Established. And and, and John, so then how did the Supreme Court arrive at their majority opinion and just totally disregard the rules? I think that's what's so frustrating when all of us who are conservatives see activism on the Supreme Court where they're just disregarding the rules and fabricating their own opinion and basically suggesting that we live in a jur- juristocracy instead of a constitutional republic that has supreme laws. Well, it that that's that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, Jenna, and and it comes in the in the syllabus. In, in my opinion, uh, to answer your question, in the syllabus, Roberts, uh, in my opinion, is a little tone deaf whenever he whenever he uh, cites uh, the, the same case, the same precedent, if you will, that every other uh, court has cited before this time when they seek to uh, interfere. In clearly constitutional in constitutional areas that are clearly not their jurisdiction, they cite Marbury versus Madison um, as as Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts did here. But just like Chief, but just like Chief Justice Marshall did in Marbury versus Madison, uh, when he left off, uh, when he uh, put a period in Article Three, Section Two where the, uh, the, the Constitution puts a comma, and he left off the rest of, of, the, uh, of that section, the, the United States Supreme Court just decides to disregard Article 6. And so the, the idea is that the Supreme Court uh, has uh, an outcome that they, that they want. Uh, and once again, this is a layperson's opinion. It's my observation that the Supreme Court decides that they want a particular outcome. In this particular case, they wanted to assume more authority over state legislatures in the drawing of congressional maps to take to, to assume more power over the, the federal legislature, if you will. And so they 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 had they had their outcome and they drafted a an opinion to suit that outcome. 
And in drafting that opinion, they, they could not make any reference to Article 6 because that would have, you know, that would have been contrary to their outcome. It would have, it would have dispelled any notion that the court uh, or the state courts could, could do anything in this matter. So uh, I, th- I think this is just something that, that the framers uh, knew was a possibility. Thomas Jefferson railed against the potential uh, author- uh, authority that the, that a uh, life-tenured federal judiciary could assume to themselves. But in my opinion, the framers did put guardrails up, and they we've been given a written constitution. We can re- read it ourselves, and we can read this opinion ourselves, and we can say, well, wait, this part is completely contrary to the constitution. That part is completely contrary to the constitution. So uh, they're trying to assume more authority, and, and we need to stop that. We do need to stop that, and that's exactly, uh, you're absolutely right, John, that this is uh, what the the Supreme Court does when they want an outcome-based resolution that they don't actually have uh, the authority for. And in the what I thought was a, a yet another uh, beautifully written dissent by Justice Thomas, um, his first line is, this court sits to resolve not questions and issues, but cases or controversies. And he's, he's, he's making uh, the assertion that they're not following following uh, their limited jurisdiction and authority in Article 3. And so they've been doing this for decades, uh, just assuming that the the authority that they don't have under the Constitution to get to an outcome that the majority prefers. So we do need to stop that. And uh, what is your opinion on the best way to do that, because the, the, this now is the opinion from the bench. It's clearly wrong. So, uh, what's the resolution? Well, one of the one of the means that I chose to attempt to re- to solve these problems, to resolve these issues, was by the what uh, the framers referred to, the Federalist Paper writers referred to as the power over the purse. And that is, uh, I, and I'll give you an example. For example, uh, when the uh, 11th Circuit back in, I think it was 2003, if I recall right, the 11th Circuit uh, sought to uh, order the removal of the Ten Commandments from uh, the Alabama State Supreme Courthouse that Chief Justice Roy Moore had placed there. Uh, I offered an amendment to the Appropriations Bill, the relevant Appropriations Board Bill, the Commerce State Justice uh, Department of uh, Justice Appropriations Bill, which funded uh, the federal judiciary and just basically said no money may be expended for uh, the enforcement of any order pursuant to that particular opinion uh, that was that was uh, uh, so you know in 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 practical sense what would have happened was if uh, ultimately the the uh, the Alabama State Supreme Court had it removed they removed justice. Chief Justice more than they removed the Ten Commandments, unfortunately. But, but what would have happened on the federal level is a an order would have been issued by the Eleventh Circuit and the the federal executive branch under the authority of the U.S. Marshal Service would have contracted for the removal of that. Well, if you if you if you uh, uh, if you uh, if you stop funding that process, that process can't go on, and so. Uh, the appropriations process is is a way uh, and is the fastest way, in my opinion, to stop these errant decisions from becoming uh, uh, 
becoming made in practice. And and that's one of the, as you said, the quickest and best uh, resolutions. And that's an idea that uh, Governor DeSantis has been talking about quite a lot on the federal level as well. And, you know, from his time in Congress has, has seen that also uh, as a solution. And in just um, the last about three minutes that I have with you, um, John, I, I also want to get your commentary on the concept of judicial review as a whole, because I think this idea in the conservative mind uh, really doesn't jive with what the Constitution actually does provide in Article 3. And I've long been an advocate um, to reinterpret uh, Marbury and to say, you know, really that case um, set us on a really bad uh, track and it needs to uh, this whole concept of judicial review really needs to change in terms of the way that the Supreme Court exercises it. Well, yes, I, I agree completely. And uh, you know, Jenna, we need to actually kind of do a crash course on not only Marbury versus Madison, but the history behind it, and uh, the fact, as uh, Dr. Lewis Fisher from the Library of Congress has pointed out, that. That after Marbury versus Madison, for the for the next 32 years that John Marshall was Chief Justice, the, the Supreme Court never again overturned a congressional act, and it was because of you know the 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 impeachment of Samuel Chase and all those other things that happened subsequent to Marbury versus Madison, and 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 when the when the legislature and in the case of Marbury versus Madison, the executive decided to disregard what the court was attempting to do is is important. Now, and now we're not talking about an assault on the so-called independence of the judiciary. I, the, the court can say whatever it you know wants to say, but in in what Tom in what Jefferson referred to as the spheres of action of the legislative branch, you know the, the Congress doesn't have to fund these stupid opinions, uh, and the, and what. Uh, Hamilton said about the judiciary needs to be understood by an executive, and that is that the court's power is, they he said, merely judgment. And the court ultimately depends upon the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgment. So, <clears throat> so a, a president uh, can disregard in his e- executive capacity these errant opinions of the court and simply you know, refuse to execute any orders pursuant to them. Once again, that doesn't stop the judiciary from judging. It just doesn't, it doesn't uh, uh, make the, the executive branch uh, obliged to, to take part in these, in these right. decisions. And, and that makes so much sense. And uh, John Hosteller, really appreciate it. Um, you're going to be on my podcast later this afternoon. We're going to uh, dive deeper into this. So I'd encourage everyone to listen to that. TheJennaEllisShow.com. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are talking about the U.S. Supreme Court and their opinion uh, yesterday 
in Moore versus Harper. And uh, this was really, in in my opinion and in the opinion of um, virtually all legal analysts that that I respect and, and pay attention to. And of course, you know, there there can be a diversity of opinion, and this is what lawyers do. We we argue back and forth, and we uh, we we look and compare and contrast, hopefully, to the Constitution, not just our preferred outcomes, and and debate. And uh, one of my good friends, who I know all of you are familiar with, Josh Hammer, who is uh, himself a great legal analyst and lawyer, tweeted this yesterday. This point cannot be emphasized enough. Moore versus Harper today is just the latest evidence for it. President Trump had three Supreme Court picks in one four-year term. All three of his picks are demonstrably inferior to both Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. That is a simple fact. So uh, Josh is the senior editor at large at Newsweek and also the host of the great podcast, The Josh Hammer Show. And he joins me now. So Josh, um, first, I want to get your your take on this, uh, this opinion overall, but then I want to get into kind of the political fallout um, pursuant to your tweet and also how this this opinion now um, is going to affect future elections, including uh, 2024. So good morning. Yeah, good morning, Jenna. Always a pleasure to join you. So Moore versus Harper was one of this term's more anticipated cases. I mean, I think the two most anticipated cases have not been released yet. That would be affirmative action, which is technically two cases, one out of Harvard, one out of, one out of University of North Carolina, and then also this case out of your home state, Colorado, called 303 Creative, that is a very similar case to Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's kind of this thorny intersection of free speech, religious liberty, LGBT, all that stuff. So hopefully we, we finally get some good rulings on some of those issues. But Moore versus Harper was was definitely one of the cases that I think many of us were anticipating. And it's kind of a bizarre outcome. It, it, it's kind of a bizarre outcome because what the court did in a in a 6-3 opinion was to rule somewhat gratuitously. They, they, they really did not have to do it. So, you know, I'm trying – I don't want to go too far into the, into the legal weeds. I, I obviously could with you, but I don't want to bore the audience here. But there are some basic doctrines when it comes to litigation – you know, everything in the, in the federal courts has to be what Article Three of the Constitution refers to as a case or controversy. And in order to be a case or controversy, the parties need to demonstrate standing, that they have suffered a concrete injury, and that the courts are in a good position to redress that industry via a proper remedy. And furthermore, there are other doctrines called ripeness and mootness. And mootness in particular basically means that no subsequent actions have taken in the course of the litigation since the court agreed to hear the case that effectively would remove the court from the process. Basically, the, the, the actors involved have, have settled this themselves. And that's actually exactly what happens here in, in Moore versus Harper. Clarence Thomas is very, very emphatic about that in what I find to be a very persuasive dissent joined by Neil Gorsuch and, and Sam Melito. Unfortunately, Chief Justice Roberts, as he is wont to do, kind of goes out of his way to to shoot down the so-called independent state legislature theory, which is, which is a theory that the leftist media, the corporate media, was kind of up in arms about. They, they called this a far-right theory, kind of a fringe theory. Ba- basically, kind of the actual substantive constitutional question was whether the federal elections clause of the Constitution are in Article One, Section 4, whether it would give state legislatures basically full power to to interpret their state constitution without the federal courts 
kind of getting in the way. And John Roberts, in his opinion, goes out of his way to say that, no, that there is no kind of exception here to judicial review. Marbury versus Madison establishes judicial review for everything. And therefore, the federal courts can get involved here. And there was no reason for him to do that because, it, again, the issue became moot. The North Carolina Supreme Court overruled itself. It changed its ruling and effectively made this litigation one that the federal courts did not need to weigh in on. So the whole thing is basically a giant exercise in virtue signaling is kind of my read on it. That's definitely Clarence Thomas's read on it when he refers to this as basically an advisory opinion, which the court back in the 1790s established very early on that they would not do. That's how you get standing doctrine in the first place. And to your point about the tweet, Jenna, that's why I was disappointed to see that Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh fell for this, because, again, the whole thing is just gratuitous. There was no reason to do this. And it reeks of virtue signaling. And on kind of a crass political level as well, I certainly worry about the possible ramifications of this for Republicans in future election cycles. And I think, Josh Hammer, that you're you're very right uh, to be concerned about uh, the outfall of this and and especially be concerned um, as well about uh, the lack of tr- of truly having a solid conservative majority. And, you know, initially uh, you and I had talked about kind of more of this three, three, three that that we actually have on the court. And I think that this this case uh, in part displays that with the three justices in the dissent and um, and and my response to your tweet yesterday and then you and I talked about this a little bit was I also uh, place blame on the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo and some of these people that were involved uh, very heavily in selecting uh, these these judicial picks uh, for the Supreme Court and presenting them to President Trump who ultimately then um, did nominate them and and we find ourselves now instead of having uh, five justices that mirror uh, Thomas and Alito themselves, we have this sort of 3-3-3 three, three, three split where we have uh, three very uh, leftist liberal activist judges. We have three kind of moderates that, you know, occasionally Kavanaugh and Barrett and, and Roberts less frequently get it right. And then we have um, three most conservative and and Gorsuch of course would be on um, would be in that block but leaning moderate where he's had other opinions like in Bostock that um, inexplicably uh, read into the term sex in the 1964 Civil Rights Act and said sure that includes sexual orientation and gender identity which clearly wasn't contemplated by Congress but anyway so we have this kind of you know three through three split and and I think that for people um, anyone who who either follows this closely like you and I do or um, anyone listening who simply cares about the Supreme Court can and should be um, a little bit frustrated with this. And and so, you know, what in what in your view um, is is kind of the backdrop of this that uh, that the, because we had a great opportunity with three justices from President Trump um, that that happened to where we now have this three 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 split instead of a solid basically five four. Yeah, it's a great question, right? Um, and I think, by the way, I think I think three 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 split is actually generous. If anything, I hate to be so Debbie Downer, but that's actually generous because I don't think Neil Gorsuch deserves to be in the same category as Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito, because he is is Justice Gorsuch is very solid on some basic kind of separation of powers question. He is very solid 
on on religious liberty for the most part and things like that. But he he really does go wayward in certain buckets of cases. He is he's probably the single most far left member of the court, literally the single most far left member of the court left of Sonia Sotomayor and, and justice like that when it comes to. Indian tribes when it comes to Indian law, and perhaps that comes from the fact that he kind of served on the 10th Circuit out in your home state, Colorado, and maybe had some kind of unique experiences there. But he's very, very left on those issues. He's very liberal on many kind of just bread and butter criminal defense issues. And of course, you mentioned the Bostock case from 2020, where he infamously misread the Civil Rights Act to imbue that statute with sexual orientation and so-called gender identity when the plain text clearly did not call so. So I, I think it's generous, honestly, to kind of put Gorsuch with Thomas and Alito. It's really something of like a like a two one two one three court. If you want to be like really technical, <laughs> where Kavanaugh and, and Barrett fair. are kind of are kind of between Gorsuch and Roberts. But anyway, um, all that is to say that obviously it could have it could have been a lot better, right? It could have been a lot more solid. And yes, it's true the three Trump nominees have, have given us. Some some great cases. We obviously had the tremendous victory in Dobbs last last June, we, and we had various other solid rulings last term, including this major Second Amendment case, the Bruin case out of New York State. I mean, there were plenty of other reasons to celebrate, but so, you know, there have also been any number of other examples where I think Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh have sided with Chief Justice Roberts over Thomas Alito and often Gorsuch. There have been any number of religious liberty cases where they have not gone nearly far enough. There was a case out of 2021 called Fulton versus Philadelphia. It was a case that really presented the court with a nice, clean opportunity to once and for all overturn a misguided 1990 case called Employment Division versus Smith which was actually written by the late, great Justice Scalia, but I think many religious liberty advocates would say that it was one of his more misguided opinions. It's been very criticized by many conservatives over the past decade or two. And unfortunately, Barron and Kavanaugh decided not to join Thomas Lito Gorsuch to overturn that case. Uh, and many, many other examples, certainly as well. Kavanaugh went wayward on a redistricting case out of Alabama a couple of weeks ago, kind of further in line with his whole virtue signaling Stick, you might say, on the court. And when it comes to judicial nominations in general, I, I think the current apparatus that we have in place is, is, is just not up to the task. And we, I've written so much over the years on like what things that we could be doing tangibly better. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll throw just, just a few things out there real quick. One is we clearly just need to vet a lot better. So for Gorsuch in particular, this is this was a demonstrable failure of vetting. So his opinion in Bostock, the sexual orientation, gender identity case, was clearly foreshadowed, actually, by, by an opinion that he wrote back in 2009 in a case called Castle, where he basically said the same thing in a short five- or six-page opinion. So if we had, had, if we had simply had people do the reading, so to speak, kind of get in there and look through every single opinion he had written, we, we should have been able to spot that. Some other things that come to mind there. I mean, this is going to sound like somewhat of a, of a silly thing to say, but I, but I, but I, but I do think it's important. I, I actually think we should have a literal physical cap on the number of years that a judicial nominee can have spent living inside the Beltway. And that can be five years, that can be 10 years. But I, I, I literally think it's actually a good idea to put a hard cap on that because you want people who simply have not drank the Kool-Aid of the swamp, Jenna. You want people who have actually been out there in real America who have had real jobs, real firms, real legal advocacy groups, and, and have kind of exposed themselves to, to real Americans and their religious communities, their civic communities, things like that. 
I would also personally put a ban on all nominees until Harvard Law School, uh, from Harvard Law School and Yale Law School, just simply to kind of try to diversify the pool a little bit. Some of these super elite institutions are just super, super indoctrinated right now by woke lefty professors. It's a little over-inclusive of remedy, but it's a kind of outside the ball thinking that I think we need to be really kind of trying to get us to do a little more of and not just stick to this kind of inside the beltway, D.C. circuit centric sort of style of picking judges. And I'm talking with Josh Hammer, who's the senior editor at large for Newsweek and has uh, the really excellent show, The Josh Hammer Show, which you can find uh, anywhere that you stream podcasts. And and Josh, I think your uh, your term for this that the the current apparatus needs to change. Um, I fully agree with that because uh, I remember when uh, President Trump initially nominated uh, Kavanaugh, and I was actually working for Dr. Dobson out in Colorado Springs at the time as his, as his policy advisor. And I remember having a conversation with him, and and his initial reaction to this was, "This is not a great." selection you know what what's going on and who is who is advising uh, these sorts of, of uh, nominations and certainly um, you know with with President Trump he was relying on a lot of these advocacy groups that uh, you know that you and I would would agree otherwise are doing uh, some good work but this is how Washington works in terms of uh, the swamp and being so focused on you know some of these elite institutions like you said and the current apparatus really does need to change because when you know the next Republican president uh, gets into office, whether that's Trump or someone else, the, the nominations and the selections really need to be a lot more focused on originalism, on some of these principles, and 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 not just this, you know, what I would term as um, this this grandiose theorizing of uh, of kind of so far away and removed from actual litigation. I mean, some of these opinions are just so completely removed from anything that is actually constitutionally sound, like this one that we've been talking about uh, more, but also, you know, some of the things you mentioned, like the some of the criminal law stuff. I mean, they're just, they're not practical in any sense for genuine litigants and, and actual people who are going through the system. I mean, a, among a host of many other problems. But I think that that's very apt to say that our apparatus needs to change in terms of how we... Uh, select some of these nominees. And so um, so also, you know, I've also been an advocate of uh, the Convention of States and Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution with uh, having uh, some judicial uh, remedies in terms of um, term limits on the U.S. Supreme Court and maybe even the way that we select and uh, appoint, nominate and appoint justices. Um, and just like the last 30 seconds we have here, what's what's your view on, you know, something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm very open to Convention of States. I don't think Convention of States is kind of a panacea for our woes in general, whether they're judicial branch related or not. I mean, you know, the, the threshold for getting any constitutional amendment passed is very high. I, I happen to favor age limits. Um, I actually wrote a recent column kind of just pointing out uh, America's gerontocracy is the word I use, which just refers to basically a society ruled by old people. So I, I worry greatly um, that America is has all of, it in, of all of its leading institutions totally dominated by people who are, are, are getting a little up there and perhaps sometimes past the age where they're in kind of their prime. The Supreme Court is no exception to that. So 
I'm very sympathetic yeah. to that. And, and, and um, you know, look, and, real quick. Yeah. And, okay. yeah, we and we got it. We have 10 seconds left, so I got to wrap it there. But, uh, Josh, really appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. And we'll see you tomorrow. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.